Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called The Grace Between Us, and it's all about relationships. After all, relationships are what make life worth living. But unfortunately, too many relationships grow apart. And so in this series, we're resolving to let there be grace between us instead of space between us. Be sure to follow us on social media at tablechurchdsm.org and reach out if you need anything at all. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Say, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, Table Church would love to give you one. Just shoot your hand up and an usher will meet your request, okay? We're going to read from the book of Psalms this morning, chapter 51, verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. All right, so before we get started here today, just want to give you a heads up that uh, we're not going to translate line by line like we have the last couple weeks, but Moses is actually going to come up and give a little recap in Swahili at the end, and so we just want to make sure our guests understand what we're doing. Yes, uh, so siku ya leo, yeye atubiri mzima, mimi nitakuja mwishoe, nikuja niseme nini aliubiri. So sita tasfiri moja mbili hivi, lakini mwishoe nitakuja kusema. Um, if it's okay with you, can I just read the scripture in Swahili as well? Absolutely. Yes. So, masumo ya leo inatoka kutoka mwanzoni hamsini na moja na inasema hivi. Sala ya utakaso na msama. Kwa msibabishi zaburi ya Daudi wakati nabi na thani alimjia alipokuwa akimkwisha kuenda kwa Beth Sheba. E mungu unirehemu. Sawa sawa na fadhili zako. Kiasi cha wingi wa rehema zako. Uyafute makosa yangu. Unioshe kabisa na uovu wangu. Unitakase dhambi zangu. Maana nimemjua mimi makosa yangu na dhambi yangu imbele yangu daima. Nimekutenda nime dhambi wewe peke yako na kufanya maovu mbele za macho zako. Wewe ujulikane kuwa na una haki unayapo na kuwa safi utaopo hukumu. Asante. I love to be serenaded by the sweet sounds of Moses' Swahili. <laughs> oh, man. So I want to let you guys know about something cool that we're starting here at Table Church coming up, a little change. Um, and let me just preface it real quick. You know, uh, you know what a liturgy is? Just broadly speaking, a liturgy is really anything that forms us. There are liturgies everywhere. And, and uh, our kids uh, experience liturgies every day. And as parents and as followers of Jesus, our hope is that the liturgy of the way of Jesus 
uh, is stronger than that of the world. And you know what? An hour in church on Sunday isn't enough for that because uh, there's a lot of really loud voices out there. And so we're asking ourselves, how can we just disciple our kids better? And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to start a Wednesday night kids club program at our ministry center. It's going to start uh, March 22nd. We're going to do just one meeting per month until the end of the school year. So, so March and then April and then May, just one Wednesday night at six o'clock at the ministry center. We'll take the summer off and then we'll come back in the fall, uh, with, hopefully with more frequency. But our hope in this is that we can really just kind of help our kids dig deep into God's word, into prayer, into who God is and how to follow Jesus. And so parents, uh, first through fifth grade, uh, just have that in the back of your mind. We'll be asking you soon to sign up and try to get a feel for numbers and that kind of thing. But we've got a team together already. Uh, it's going to be amazing. And I hope that you will participate with us. Also, today we are finishing our series. It's called The Grace Between Us. A lot of times in relationships, we put space between ourselves. But we've been saying, instead of space, how do we put grace between us? And so we've talked about grace in parenting, uh, grace in marriage, grace in conflict, uh, today we're going to talk about a, a different relationship, and that is your relationship with yourself. You know you have a relationship with yourself? You know that you talk to yourself and you treat yourself a particular way? And so I'm going to talk about grace for yourself today. So the psalm that we just heard was written by King David. David may win the prize for the worst sin in the Bible. I don't know, Judas might give him a run for his money, but... I mean, we're not here to adjudicate that particular trophy. Um, and we read about this particular sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so I want to walk through 2 Samuel 11 a little bit today to give us some context for this psalm. Um, so from the very first verse, we can notice that things are not going well. It says, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? At the time when kings go off to war, it's being a little subtle, kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge thing, David stayed home. Look, we've already got our first lesson from the text, and it's this. Sin begins when you compromise in your heart. It begins when you compromise in your heart. When you start to say things like what David was probably saying to himself, like, you know what? I don't think that applies to me. I think, I think I'm above that. It applies to all them, but not to me. That is apparently where David was at right now. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the juicy part of the story yet, but we already know something's off. David, up to this point, has been brave and, and righteous. I mean, this is the guy who slays lions and bears with his hands. And he, of course, as a teenager, uh, took took out Goliath, you know? Like, this guy has been a pinnacle of faith and courage. Something's different now. This isn't the David that we know. He stays home. He sends his men off to war. He stays home. Literally says, tells us that he sits on his couch in Jerusalem. This isn't the same David we once knew. He's compromised. And that's what leads to what comes next. David strolls out onto his porch one night yeah, since he's in the palace, that means he's in the tallest building in town. He can look down and see the rooftops of all the other houses, and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. And she's very beautiful. Her name is Bathsheba. And so he sends for her to come to him, and he 
sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant, and now David has a real problem on his hands. You see, not only is he the king who didn't go off to war with his men, but he's now impregnated the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers, whom we find out later in Scripture, one of his most valiant soldiers. And so David tries to figure out how to fix this problem, and he calls Uriah back from the war. He hopes that he'll spend the night with his wife, and so then he can save face. But he severely underestimates Uriah's ethics. Instead of going to his house, Uriah sleeps with the palace servants. And so the next morning, David's like, come on, man, what, what are you doing here? He says, yes, Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander and Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house? Now the ark, the ark of the covenant, that represents God's presence. Wherever that goes, that's where God goes. And so there's a little bit of a subtlety here to Uriah's response. He's essentially saying here, you know, um, uh, Israel, the men of Israel are out in the open country. Your commanders are out in the open country. Even God himself is out in a tent. You know, like, and yet David stays in Jerusalem. It's just highlighting David's compromise even more. So David has to apply more pressure. Uh, he invites Uriah over for dinner. He gets him drunk. He thinks, surely now he will go home. Uh, but nope, once again, Uriah sleeps with the servants of the palace. And so the point in this instance is clear. A drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. And so David has to resort to extreme measures. He, he sends Uriah back with a letter. If this ain't messed up, I don't know what is. He sends him back with a letter that calls for his own death. The letter is supposed to be delivered to Joab, the commander. It tells Joab to uh, put Uriah on the front lines. And then when the battle, when the fighting is at its fiercest, to tell everybody else to drop back from him so that he's struck down and killed. And so Joab does it. Uriah is killed. And actually a few other of David's men are killed in it as well. But finally, David has what he wants. Bathsheba's husband is dead. He can marry her, save face. At least that's what he thinks. You see, up to this point in the story, the language of the text has emphasized the power of the king. And one of the primary ways it's done this is the, rep the repetition of a particular word. It's the word sent. David is constantly sending people here and there. And it just kind of highlights his ability to control everybody. Okay, he sends Joab and the army. He sends messengers. He sends for Bathsheba to be brought to him. The, the Hebrew literally is the word he took, Bathsheba. David sends for Uriah to come to him. He sends Uriah back to the battle. He sends him with the letter, condemning him to death. Once again, David sends for Bathsheba to come to him after Uriah is dead. David is constantly sending people from his kind of central location. They're scurrying about all around the countryside or the palace or the city. See, the story is kind of written to highlight the, the seemingly impenetrable power of the king. One way or another, the king gets what he wants. He moves you around like a pawn on a chessboard. He will win the game because it's rigged in his favor. All this takes place throughout chapter 11, and you'll notice there is a character who is conspicuously absent in chapter 11, and that is God. God doesn't really come up much in chapter 11, but things are about to change. Look at the first verse of chapter 12. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now who's doing the sending? 
And so you kind of get the feeling, okay, tables are starting to turn a little bit. God has stepped in. He's about to take care of some business with David. The prophet Nathan tells David a little story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has a lot of lambs. The poor man only has one lamb, and he loves that lamb very much. When a traveler comes to town to visit and he stays with the rich man, the rich man doesn't slay one of his lambs. No, he slays the the poor man's one lamb. And so he tells this story to David. David is, oh, he is is fuming mad. He's like, who's this guy? He says, this man must die. And in one of the most deliciously satisfying moments in the Bible, Nathan pulls the rug out from David. You are the man, he says. David is caught. And he must face his sin. The psalm that we read, Psalm 51, when you turn there in your Bible, you'll notice usually there's a little heading above the psalm before you read verse 1. And that little heading tells us that David wrote it when the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. And what we learn about David is that as awful as his actions were, and they were next level awful, weren't they? Thousands of years separate us from the event, and they were bad then. They're, you know, seemingly worse now. We've kind of got the light of the gospel in our moral frameworks a little more than they did then. And so it seems even worse than it would have to them. As awful as his actions were, he wasn't a person to justify himself. Look, the depth of his sin is matched by the passion of his repentance. David may be one of the worst sinners in the Bible, but I think he might be the best repenter in the Bible. We can learn a lot about repentance from him, and we can learn a lot about grace for ourselves, extending grace, receiving grace from God. But there's a line in this psalm that I want to address real quick before we dive in too much. It's it's this line, verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned, he says. He's talking to God. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. And I think we could look at that and be like, wait, no? Hmm. I could think of a few other people you sinned against too, David. You got Bathsheba for one. You got Uriah for another. You got like your commanders that you sent to war without you. You got all the people in your army that you didn't join. And then you got like the wives and the children that had, you know, that were left behind while you were sitting on your couch. Like I can think of a, a handful of people that you may be sinned against as well, David. So at first, this, this seems like a completely self-absorbed thing for David to say. But there's something for us in this line that I want to discover. Because we live in an age today where we're... People will sometimes admit that they've done wrong, but won't admit that they are wrong. Do you see the difference? We will admit that we've done wrong, but we won't necessarily accept the idea that we are wrong. Uh, So think about when like a celebrity says something foolish, you know, something offensive, something clearly bad or wrong, and um, they'll get on Twitter to apologize or something like that. You know what they always say? They'll say like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. That's not who I really am. You ever see anyone say that? Like, that's not who I really am. The, the, the presupposition here is that, well, deep inside of me, I'm really a great person. And that, that thing I did, that was just a fluke, you know? Like, we, don't, we accept when we do wrong things sometimes, but we don't usually accept that we are wrong. No, that was just an aberration from my normally wonderful personality. <laughs> David doesn't see it that way. 
When David says, against you only have I sinned, I think he's saying that as he stands before the eternal God, not only is he realizing he's done a wrong thing, he's realizing he, there's something wrong right here. Something broken in me. Something that needs to be fixed. He goes on to say, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And here's what we're learning. David's main concern is not that he did wrong, but that he is wrong. And that's an important lesson that we can learn from David. David reminds us that, that we stand before an eternal God. You, you can't hide from God. You can't, like, run behind a wall, you know? Nope, God's there too. Like, you can't turn around and hope he doesn't see. God sees you. You're naked before God. He knows you better than you know yourself. And you can't hide from him. And so in a real sense, your sin really is just between you and God. Because he so impenetrably understands who you are, that there's nothing that can be hidden. All things are laid bare before God. And he is the one before whom we all must answer. He is the one who sees it all. And that is perhaps what David realized the moment that Nathan brought that hammer down on him. But here's the good news. Look, I understand, like, so far I've been talking about sin and, you know, we're broken and stuff like that. Like, it's true, and it's like a basic tenet of Christian theology. Uh, but that has to be paired with something else, and here's what it is. Genuine repentance is the doorway to experiencing genuine grace. It is the doorway to experiencing genuine grace. The fact that we stand exposed before an eternal God sounds anywhere, for, depending on your personality, from like very annoying to highly terrifying. You know, like that, that can be not pleasant to when you really start to comprehend and realize and think about that. You're like, oh, mm, mm, ah, you know, like you go through the whole range of emotions when you really, really dwell on that. Uh, but you know what? It's actually incredibly good news that we stand and exposed before God because that is a God of love that we stand before who knows us entirely but still loves us unconditionally. That's amazing. Psalm 51 is like a manual for true repentance. We can, I think, divide it into two steps today. Um, and it's almost perfectly uh, like the first half of the psalm and the second half of the psalm. And these two steps are remorse and then restoration. So let's talk about the first one, remorse. It's important that we don't under, uh, misunderstand the role of remorse because remorse can quickly become like self-pity. And self-pity can be kind of a weird form of pride. You know that? Like, like sometimes there's like a self-absorption that happens uh, when we're just like this inability to let ourselves off the hook or to forgive ourselves for something that we did. It's a weird form of pride. And here's why. Because it's like we're saying that somehow, you know, I'm so special that I was able to muster up a sin so bad that, you know, even God can't help me. You know, like the death and the atonement of Jesus on the cross, like that was good for every other soul ever to exist, but phew, I'm special. Like I'm the one that I could eat a little something extra for my sin. And so I got to continue to condemn myself because God's you know, whatever he's got going on, this is not quite enough for me. You see the weird kind of twisted kind of pride in that? Like when we just can't, it was just like, it's, that's not biblical remorse. That's something else, all right? True remorse is we, where we, we are broken over our sinfulness. I don't want to negate that at all. We're broken over our sinfulness. And here's the key. We recognize how desperately we need God's love, which is available to us. 
This is what we find in the first nine verses of Psalm 51. David puts on a clinic for us in repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Notice how David's remorse and guilt, it always keeps the, the, the reality of God's love firmly in focus, like clearly in focus. No matter where we go in this passage, it's always right there in our face. Okay, I mean, he is lamenting his sin. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's always within arm's reach of God's love for him. He's crying out for God's mercy. It's a genuine, it's a heart-wrenching cry, but it's always a hopeful cry. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That's verse seven. Hyssop was a plant used in sacrificial ceremonies in ancient Israel. It's almost like he's saying, like, treat me like a sacrifice, like slay me, God. So you'll make me clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse eight, let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Do you see both ends of it here? There's, there's this lamentation, this remorse, this sadness. There's also this hope, this firmly anchored view of, of who God is and the love that will not fail him. So biblical remorse includes genuine brokenness and guilt, and it's always paired with, with, with the hope that comes from this ridiculous love that, yeah, you messed up, you done bad, but God still loves you so much. And so we must recover this art of true biblical remorse over our sin. And notice, I'm, I'm not using the word shame. I haven't used the word shame. That's, shame's different. Shame, that's like a hopelessness that believes you're broken beyond repair. We don't believe that. I mean, you can't repair yourself. But you're far from broken beyond repair. So I'm not using the word shame. I am using the word guilt. You know what guilt is? Guilt is a perfectly appropriate reaction once you've done something for which you're guilty. If you don't ever feel guilt, the word for that is your psychopath, you know? Like, <laughs> guilt is healthy in, in the appropriate way. When surrendered before God and when understanding the overwhelming power of his grace on that. You know what I mean? Like, guilt can be appropriate. Shame, No. Uh, I just recently started playing chess. I, I played a little bit when I was a kid, um, but I had forgotten where how the pieces moved. And then my six-year-old taught me again, uh, like around Thanksgiving. And his eight-year-old cousin actually taught him how to play. So, um, And now we play chess at my house, me and my kids, and it's a lot of fun. I've actually kind of gotten really... And I'm, I've taken a deep dive a little bit. I've got an account on chess.com. I can play online. I got chess podcasts I listen to. I follow along on tournaments and stuff. I ask my kids. I'm watching on my phone. I'm like, night oh, F2, night F2. Ah! You know, it's, it's super exciting. It's just a whole culture. Like there's like, a, I don't know, there, there's like, it's like golf, you know, like get Tiger Woods of chess and stuff. So you guys are like, that's boring too, man. That's not a good illustration. I'm not, I'm not getting excited about chess here. Uh, you should just try it. But anyway, so I've been playing online, and uh, I'm, I'm really bad, okay? I, I lose a lot. In fact, here's, here's the breakdown of my games. I've won 39% of my games, I've lost 54% of my games, and I've drawn 7% of my games. So I've won 39%, I lost 54%. I'm like the Iowa State Cyclones of chess. Yes. <laughs> I didn't get invited to a bowl game this year, man. But you know, sometimes when I'm losing at chess all the time, I know I was going to say the Huskers of chess. I didn't want to alienate people, and then I forgot it just came out. Sorry. Uh, 
and, and, uh, but of course I could still alienate people from Nebraska, but I'm less worried. Um, yeah, I, so I, sometimes I'm like losing all these games, you know, I'm just like, I should just quit. Like, what am I, what am I doing? You know, I'm 39 years old, I'm a grown man, I got kids, what am I playing chess for? I should just quit. I should just give up. That's how a lot of us treat our spiritual lives. Oh, I've messed up. Apparently I'm not cut out for this. I should just quit. I should just give up. Let me tell you something. The gospel is not like chess. And when you hear that voice telling you that you should just quit, just, you should just give up this, this stuff, whatever this is, church stuff, Jesus stuff, God stuff, whatever, it's not for you. And whenever you hear that voice, here's what I want you to understand. Here's the truth. No, you were actually perfectly designed for holiness. Okay? You are perfectly designed to be a Jesus follower. You were made for it. And you can do it by the power of God. Be a holy follower of Jesus. So don't listen to those lies that say, oh, I should just get, this isn't for me. I'm just not one of those spiritual people. Nah, you were made for it, I promise. Biblical remorse is a sadness for our sin that is rooted in the damage that it causes. But it always has in view this hopefulness, this reality, this truth, the love of God, the power of God's grace to transform us. Which leads us to the second step of repentance, which is restoration. David goes on to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So starting in verse 10, uh, there's a shift, I think, uh, where we start to focus more on this restoration stuff. And it starts, David starts by asking God to create in him a clean heart. It's the same Hebrew word that we find in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. Whenever that word, bara, in the Hebrew comes up in the Old Testament, it's always God doing the creating. And so it's like David is asking God, is he's asking to be remade in a way that only God is capable of doing. And this is important for us to understand. Like, yeah, we, we've talked about how now like we're broken, you know, like we need fixing, but we can't do it ourselves. And David is showing us this, like, remake me, God. Create like you created the heavens and the earth. Create something new in me. Make me new, God. David shows us that God not only forgives us, but he can transform us. That's restoration. You know, that, you know the gospel is more than just God forgives you for your sins? That's pretty big, by the way. There's more, though. It gets even better. God can transform you. The gospel is not just a courtroom, it's also a hospital. You know, courtrooms where you're declared innocent, hopefully. The hospital is where you're actually healed. That's what God wants to do in you. I find that, that many of us tend to ignore one of the two steps we've talked about. Maybe you get stuck in remorse, you know? You're just like condemning yourself all the time. You just can't seem to stop. Or maybe you skip remorse entirely and run over to restoration. You're like, oh, God's grace. Jesus loves me. Oh, I'm good. When we do that, we, we miss something wonderful. God can bring beauty from ashes. And if you've sinned, well, you've sinned. Uh, but if there's something that you're having a hard time moving past or you've done something that you know is wrong, uh, you're in a unique opportunity 
to experience amazing grace. To be able to just kind of stand helplessly before God and be like, I don't deserve this, but you still love me. Holy smokes, this is crazy. You know, like, wow. If you've never had that feeling, that moment, then you haven't quite yet understood what we're talking about when we talk about how incredible God's grace is. It's like, no, you don't, you don't deserve it. Nobody else will probably give it to you, but God does. And God wants to. And he'll do anything for it. In fact, he has done anything for it. So which of these two steps do you need to recover today? And here's the challenge. Our culture is um, very contradictory on the issue of repentance. On the one hand, our culture is very keen on kindness and tolerance. You know, our world says that, you know, it's good. You follow your impulses. Do your truth. Live your life. You be you. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, everyone's good, everyone's happy, just do whatever's inside of you. So we're very kind, very tolerant, very wanting everyone to be themselves. But our faith kind of cuts against that, doesn't it? Like, our faith reminds us, like, no, actually, actually the heart is deceitfully wicked. Actually, uh, you're a sinner, you haven't just done wrong, you are wrong. Kierkegaard, my guy, says, you exist in error. He says, you are untruth. That's what he said. You are untruth. Oh, that, I love that line. And, and so, no, like, don't just do whatever. Don't just follow your heart. Do whatever makes you happy. You're untruth, you know? Like, you keep doing that, you're going to lead yourself down some pretty nasty paths eventually. And, and so it may be that for we moderns, you know, like, we might need to be reminded how to be remorseful because we have just kind of been conditioned to think that, no, we're actually really great on the inside. I'm a wonderful person. Yeah. We might need to be remorseful sometimes. Maybe you need to be reminded that you need God's mercy. And so our culture wants to affirm our impulses, which makes remorse a little bit rare today, I think. But there's a contradiction at the same time, because that same culture is also at times incredibly judgmental. You know, shame is everywhere in our culture because you're not vegan enough. Uh, because you don't vote the right way, because you're a stay-at-home mom, because you're not a stay-at-home mom. Like, there's shame everywhere if you're looking hard enough, and usually you don't even have to go looking for it. Our culture talks a lot about kindness and tolerance, but it can also be fiercely cruel to anybody who breaks its moral code. And it turns out our culture has a strict law, but no clear path toward grace, and that makes restoration, ex- restoration difficult. No wonder we're more anxious and depressed than we've ever been. No wonder deaths of despair are tripling. You know, like no wonder things are so difficult because we feel this pressure to, um, I don't know, meet the expectations for how we look and how we vote and for what we like and who we know and what our Spotify aura is. Like everything is a contest. It forces us sometimes into an eternal cycle of below the surface remorse at the expense of restoration. And so we have these two tensions going on in our culture. Which one do you need God for today? Or maybe both. But listen, nothing acknowledges, the gospel, it pegs who we are, you know? It nails us as who humans are. The brokenness that we all kind of know is there. But nothing also gives us an answer like the gospel does. You can't fix it. God can and God will. So which one are you stuck in? Do you glaze over your sin? Maybe you need to spend some time in remorse. Dwell on the first half of Psalm 51. Maybe you need grace for yourself. Maybe you need restoration. Maybe you need to dwell on the second half this week. Whatever one it is, just spend some time with God and ask him where it is and which one it is for you. 
Because remember, genuine repentance is the doorway to experiencing genuine grace. Um, and so we're, as we close today, um, I'm going to invite the prayer team. They're going to come sit down front. And look, I know that perhaps this sermon stirred up some, some difficult things, maybe some memories or some things or some feelings of guilt and that kind of stuff. And if you need prayer over either of these areas, these steps, remorse, repentance, just the whole thing, or you just need to confess, that's awesome. We would love to pray over you. They're going to be down here. They're the people with the red lanyards on. Just come down, and, and they would love to pray with you. But also, maybe you're like, I don't, I don't actually know God's grace. I've actually never experienced God's grace before. And if you would like to, then we would love to pray over that as well. If you want to follow Jesus and to enter into this life of, of uh, knowing and experiencing this kind of wild and crazy and unexplainable love of God, today's the day to do that. So come down and they would love to pray with you over that as well. And if you are one of those people, please, on your connection card, circle the cross there just so that I can follow up with you personally and uh, just walk with you in this, in this life. And so I'm going to turn it over to Moses, and I'll let him close us in prayer as well. I should make sure this is on. <clears throat> okay, um, so I'm, as I said, I'm just going to translate the sermon um, just in summary really briefly. Uh, for a soil speaker. So, Ambacho, uh, uh, Pastor Ametombe Sikuya Leo, Ilikuwa uh, Kuhusu Mfalme Daudi, Na Ambacho ya Alifanya, Wakati Alifanya Dhambi, Baka Ule, Mwanaume wa Bethsheba, Kauliwa Pale, Wakikuwa Kwa Vita. So, Kwa Ufupi, Nasema hivi, Mfalme Daudi, Alifanya Mambo Fulani, Ambayo Yalikuwa Mabaya Sana. Lakini Mungu, alimuonyesha dhambi zake alimuomba Mungu amsame tunaweza kusoma sala yake katika Zaburi moja. Zaburi hii inatukumbusha kwamba hatufanyi tu mambo mabaya bali kwamba mioyo yetu ni yenye dhambi Habari njema ni kwamba tunapomuomba Mungu samaa yeye atatupa Hii inaitwa toba Zaburi Hamsini na moja, inatuonyesha kwamba toba ina sehemu mbili, majuto na urejesho. Hiyo ndiyo alikuwa anasema pointi mbili, majuto na urejesho. Kwanza tunaonyesha majuto. Kwa Zaburi hamsini uh, na moja, uh, ukianzia sehemu ya moja, inasema e Bwana, unirehemu sawa sawa na fadhili zako. Kisha tunaweza kupata urejesho, uniridhishe furaha ya wokovu wako wakati fulani tunakuwa na wakati migumu kuonyesha majuto kwa ajili ya dhambi zetu tunafanya vibaya lakini tunaonekana kutojali nyakati nyingine tuna majuto lakini tunapambana na urejesho tunajisikia vibaya sana kwa ile ambacho tulifanya hivi kwamba tuwezi kukubali msamaha kutoka Mwenyezi Mungu lakini leo ikiwa una wakati mgumu wa mojawapo hizo sehemu Mungu anaweza kukuweka huru tumia muda katika maombi na umuombe Mungu akusamee na akuponye kutoka dhambi zako na Mungu atafanya hivyo kwa sababu anakupenda sana ndivyo Bwana asifiwe amina amina tuombe let us pray, please, church. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word this morning. Thank you for your grace. 
that sometimes, even though we know it, even though we hear it, we sometimes do not take it in us, into our hearts. Sometimes we have a hard time wrestling with that. And Father, we just pray that today we can have hearts that are softened. We can have eyes that are opened to understand that we truly are sinful. We fall short of your glory. But through you, through your Holy Spirit, through your Son, we are saved. We are healed by your grace. And as Phil said, can we understand and move from the courtroom to the hospital? Can we be healed? Can we let your mighty power move within us to heal us? Today and even henceforth, Mungu Baba naomba siku ya leo, uturumie, utuponye mioyo yetu kwa vile tuna makosa mengi wakati mwingine hatutaki kukubali ambacho umefanya tumefanya ambacho tumeangusha ambacho tumetendea watu wetu na tunakataa nguvu yako ikuje ndani yetu tunaomba Mungu siku ya leo tusamee ili ikuje ndani yetu tunaomba tunaomba utusamee kwa vile tunajua neema yako ni kubwa itatupeleka mbali maishani mwetu so siku ya leo tunaomba utusamee na tukubali neema yako. Asante asante sana Mwenyezi Mungu. Naomba kwa yote Yesu Kristo. Amina. Amen. Please rise for last song.